Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Good morning, church. Morning. Morning, Bethlehem, because we're live streaming from here. And good morning to anyone else who's joining us online. And happy Mothering Sunday to all of the moms, all of the grandmas, all of the aunts, all of the mother figures, and all of the women who have helped to shape us and love us. And Mothering Sunday, in case you didn't know, was a British term. So if you get a chance later on to look it up, it actually has some really interesting historical roots. But I like it because it sounds so much better than just Happy Mother's Day, because it makes it clear that today isn't just about celebrating biological mothers, but also appreciating women who have the gift of mothering, even if they're not mothers themselves. So it doesn't just mean we're celebrating those who have children. And sometimes it's easy to get the impression that the only types of women that are celebrated and honored in the Bible are women who have children. So we want to clarify and expand the term and let you in on a little secret this morning, which is that there is more to the story. So we're going to talk about the stories we tell about womanhood and how they shape our experience. And we're going to do that by looking at two passages. And the first one is probably the passage that you're used to thinking of the most when it comes to biblical womanhood, which is Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. But then we're going to introduce you to another character that I bet you won't have thought of, which is the Roman 16 woman. It doesn't really flow off the tongue in the same kind of way. So before we get to our text, the first point we need to make is about stories. We all make sense of the world through stories. We have stories that are passed down to us, literal, actual stories that are passed down to us through our families. And those stories help to answer the questions and ask questions such as, who am I? Who are we? What do we value? How do we act? We also have national and cultural stories that tell us who is successful and who is worth emulating. Who's part of our tribe? Who's not part of our tribe? What makes our tribe so special? And there are stories that tend not to be overtly told and they are passed down through assumptions. And we see that throughout all of our families. There are deeper stories that help us to answer other questions such as what's the purpose of life and what happens when we die. So stories more than anything else shape how we see the world and how we live our lives. And as most of you know, what Jesus taught was in story form. So, for example, if I asked any of you to recite back to me the Beatitudes, you may or may not be able to do it. But if I said, recite back to me the story of the prodigal son, most of you would have no problem at all. And Jesus taught with stories so that we could absorb them, absorb his stories, and make them into our stories and begin to think about God, ourselves, and the world through the lens of the stories that he told. Jesus is truth. So the key thing is to tell his stories, his true stories about ourselves. This aligns us with reality and shapes how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Similarly, there are lots of stories about womanhood that answer questions such as, what is a woman? What is the role of women? What makes a good woman? 
there are a lot of traditional stories. And on the flip side, there are a lot of progressive stories. And there are many, many stories in between those two extremes. And every single story about womanhood will have a small grain of truth about it. Otherwise, no, otherwise no one would believe it. But an incomplete or reduced story will leave us feeling incomplete and reduced too. Now, as we mentioned, the Proverbs 31 woman, some of you will start to have some kind of feelings or reactions to that. For some of you, it'll be the warm fuzzies, the feeling of comfort of the Proverbs 31 woman. For others of you, it'll be a feeling of pressure. And for others, it will be that feeling where you need to just, you know, roll your eyes into the back of your skull because you can't believe we're talking about the Proverbs 31 woman again. But let's read it together. Proverbs 31, verse 10 to 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Many a Christian man, when looking for a wife, will make his wish list straight from Proverbs 31, with maybe some of the more sexier bits of the Songs of Solomon added in there. But how does reading Proverbs 31 make you feel, ladies? The women's Bible commentary points out that many women see here a superwoman, another unrealistic and dehumanizing depiction of women created to entice and promote the values of men. For instance, the woman is described as something to be found, something to be purchased, something to be prized for high value for the land and goods and the status that she brings. It also assumes that the Proverbs 31 woman is married and is a mother, 
But my first question is, when does this woman sleep? And what exactly was her husband doing? Where was he? Chilling, yeah. So many of us have read Proverbs 31 or been held up to this standard and felt inadequate or hemmed in. And the story that is heard from the text is that this woman has her whole entire home life all together. Everything she does is tight. Her house is clean from top to bottom. She wears the best clothes. She uses the best fabric to make clothes from. If you have holes in your clothes, don't worry. She's going to sew it for you. She ain't afraid of the snow. Your house is going to be warm. Now, some of us will say they know a Proverbs 31 woman. And if you do, that's great. Because we all need a Proverbs 31 woman in our lives in some kind of way. But also, if it isn't you, and it's not really me either, then where do we fit into the picture? Author Rachel Held Evans wrote a book called The Year of Biblical Womanhood, and she turned the entire passage of Proverbs 31 into a literal to-do list for a month. And if you get a chance, you should look it up because it's absolutely hilarious. She has pictures of what this looked like. But she said it almost caused her a mental breakdown. And I think we can all relate to that feeling. But here is the thing that we miss. Proverbs 31 is not a job description. It's a character description. The book of Proverbs begins with nine chapters about wisdom who is personified as a woman. And in my accent, I'm sorry, I have to do this lady wisdom And it ends with these verses about an actual woman who embodies the qualities in her time and in her culture. But because we live in such a production-driven society, we tend to focus on what a woman can do. And when we read Proverbs 31, we focus on what it is that she is doing. But the most important thing here is not so much all of those activities, but the qualities that she has and that she's embodying What is in focus aren't her actions, but her virtues, which we can define like this. Virtues are character traits that lead to human flourishing. Proverbs 31 is an acrostic poem that celebrates those virtues. So each line of the poem is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So quite literally an A to Z of virtue, and it is embodied by a woman. If you look past all of the weaving, all of the sewing, all of the child rearing, you will see a woman that is trustworthy, a woman that is creative, a woman that is determined, a woman that is entrepreneurial, a woman that is diligent, wise, strong, discerning, merciful, well-regarded, courageous, who has a sense of taste and a sense of humor. And I bet you she likes tea more than coffee. She does, guys. She does. It's in there. It's in there somewhere. The women's Bible commentary goes on to say that this woman is in fact set apart and named as the beginning, indeed the standard of faithfulness. Now, doesn't that sound like something that's attractive? The kind of person that you would want to be? What we're meant to come away with is not only that something that little girls should want to grow up to be or men who want to get married, have these, want to desire these qualities in a wife, but it's the kind of person that everyone should want to emulate. To have a character like this leads to a flourishing life. 
When we reduce this passage to a rigid set of rules or expectations, we do a real great disservice to the diversity of women's experiences and the unique gifts and talents and virtues that each woman possess. Our story gets reduced and we become reduced as a result and we need to see the bigger story. All right, so it's my job to tell us a little bit about that bigger story. Because Proverbs 31 is not where the story of biblical womanhood begins. In fact, it begins in the very first chapter of Genesis. So we want to read Genesis 1, 27 and 28, which says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. That's the fun part, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the beginning of the story, page one begins with God creating humanity in his image, male and female. So God's declaring that both men and women are made in his image. And in fact, it goes beyond that. It's even saying that it's only together that we complete his image. We get a fuller picture of the image of God as men and women function together. So he makes them in his image, and then he gives them a task. He gives them a calling And when you think about what he's telling them to do, he's echoing what he himself has been doing in the 26 verses beforehand, right? He says, multiply yourselves, just like he has multiplied his own images, multiply more of your own kind, cultivate the earth, govern the creation together, rule together. This is kingship language. So God creates us to be something first, and that's to be images of his, to be beings that reflect the character and nature of God. And then he says, go into the world and do as he does together, right? And so this is the original story that didn't take long for corruption And sin, to come into the picture, just two chapters later, in chapter 3, we see after the man and the woman, they betray God. God declares what the the consequences of that betrayal are going to be. And one of the things that he says to the woman is, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, or it could also be translated, you shall desire to manipulate your husband, but he shall dominate over you. He shall rule you. And so you've got two stories being contrasted here. This is a very different story that begins to emerge than what we saw in chapter one. Rather than a story of men and women partnering together in ruling the creation, it says men and women will contend against one another. Instead of them having dominion over the creation together, it says men will dominate over women. And so this is exactly the history that we begin to see played out up until the present day. But the point we have to get here is that gender hierarchy, gender warfare is the result of sin. It's not the result of God's intent. 
And so I don't see how you can come away with anything other than that from reading Genesis 1 to 3. That is not the first story that's told. It's a corruption of the story. And so you've all read that part of Genesis before, and you'll know in the sentence just before when God declares that this is going to have this, this enmity between the sexes, in the sentence just before that, God also gives the first prophecy of the redeeming of that original story. He says, one of the woman's descendants will one day crush the serpent's head. And thus begins, so the, we've got these two parallel stories running, the story of sin and the story of God's salvation, his redemption, running simultaneously through history. And so you see the beginning of this great story of the Bible of how God would overcome evil with good and redeem us, not only to our original story, but actually to an even greater story than where we began at. And so, obviously, you follow the story of the Bible, and it culminates in the coming of Jesus. And so Jesus comes, he incarnates, he is the new and restored image of God in humanity, and he comes into a culture where women are treated as out-and-out property, and he treats them as sisters. He comes into a culture where women are pretty much valued as sexual partners, and Jesus remains unmarried and makes women ministry partners. He comes into a culture where men are the breadwinners, and Jesus eats bread won by female benefactors. They fund his ministry. And so you're beginning to see this clash between these two stories. And everything that had been twisted in the fall between the sexes, Jesus begins to turn on its head, begins to subvert it inside out. And so Romans tells us that Jesus is the new Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the renewed image of God. And now what's happening is he's calling sons and daughters back into their redeemed story calling them back into a restoration of their intended purpose. And so even though you see these kind of sinful dynamics that have worked their way through history and have men dominating over women and women subjugated, we're seeing a bigger story at play here. And so the point is this, that the gospel restores women to shared vocation in the image of God restores men and women into the shared vocation of the image of God. And so this is, this is the story that we begin to see played out in the New Testament church, in the documents, the letters, the narratives of the New Testament church that we read in the, the New Testament. And so I want to introduce you now to, we've all heard of the Proverbs 31 woman, but I want to introduce you to another woman that you probably never heard of, which is Romans 16 woman. So let's read Romans 16, verses 1 to 16. You've probably read this passage before and not thought much of it. But here's what it says. Okay, I commend to you, this is Paul the Apostle speaking. He's writing a letter to the church in Rome that he's never been to. He's just laid down this incredible foundation of theology. It's his greatest work of theology in the letter to the Romans. And here's how he closes. This is the closing of the letter. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. 
I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles that are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinitus, who was, at, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. It's one of those passages you hope you don't have to read in church. I find the Greek names a little easier than the Hebrew names. But still, so what, Ian? <laughs> a list of greetings. Okay, you've probably skimmed over this passage. If you're like me, you, can, you get to this amazing end of Romans, and it's like, oh, you know, this, it feels like it's anticlimax um, to Paul's greatest work of theology. And so this is actually, when we pause and we look into what's happening here, this is actually powerful. All right, this is, the, I mean, I want you to get ready to have your minds blown a little bit when, you, when we look at this, all right? Paul greets 29 people, and at least 10 of them are women. Hermes, we're not quite sure if it's a female name or a male name, but there's at least 10 women mentioned in this passage, all right? So what do we see when we look at these women? All right, Paul begins commending Phoebe. So why is he commending Phoebe? Well, what's going on here, scholars tell us, what's happening here is that Paul is entrusting the letter of Romans to Phoebe. She is the carrier of the letter to the church in Rome. And, I mean, we have to understand is there was no post office back then. There's no FedEx. <laughs> People were traveling all the time, but it was very, very dangerous to travel. And so it meant a great deal to entrust a letter to someone, to carry it as far as she was going. She's probably going from Ephesus to Rome. And so no one would travel alone in those days, especially not a, a single woman. And so what we're getting here is a picture of a woman who is wealthy, important, and extremely trusted by Paul, right? So the reason, and you know, the reason that he only mentions her, she's definitely traveling with other people. He only mentions her because she's probably traveling with her servants, and he mentions that she's a benefactor. So she's an important woman in her city. But here's the thing. 
She's not only that, Paul says she is a deacon of the church. And you say, why doesn't he say deaconess? Well, because deaconesses as an order didn't exist yet. Deacon, this was an ordained office in the church. So here we have an ordained office holder in the church, Phoebe. Now here's the really cool thing, all right? I didn't know this till, till recently. Historians tell us that the carrier of a letter, because it was so dangerous, because it was so much entrusted to that person, the letter carrier would also often be the one who was entrusted to read the letter to the recipient, right? And you say, well, couldn't they read it themselves? Well, ancient readers, the people didn't invent reading silently in their heads until a lot later, believe it or not. This is why Philip knew that the eunuch was reading from Isaiah because he was reading out loud, right? And so every letter was brought and delivered and it was read, usually either by a professional letter reader, yes, those existed, or by the carrier themselves. And so it's quite likely that Phoebe not only carried the letter, but she read the letter, the first person to proclaim the letter of the Romans to the church in Rome. You know what that makes her? The first preacher of the book of Romans. Not only that, the person who was carrying the letter and and delivering it would often also be the one entrusted to explain to the recipients the meaning of the letter. Okay? So she's the first preacher, the first expositor of the letter of Romans. I mean, right? We can't be sure of that, of course, because this is all we have, yet historians will tell us it's actually a very likely scenario. Okay, so... Let's move on. There's, there's nine more. So the next person we get is this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And we know these, they're some of the most mentioned people in the New Testament. They're in Acts, they're in First Corinthians, and Second Timothy, and here. And so Paul describes this first century power couple as co-workers. He says they risked their necks for him. They made tents with him, so they're co-laborers physically, but they're co-laborers also in the gospel. And not only that, it's interesting he mentions here, they're leaders of a house church. And what's really interesting, you've probably heard this before, but what's interesting here is that almost all the times when Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, they're always mentioned together, and usually Priscilla is mentioned first, which suggests she is the more prominently known of the two. In the same way that you never heard it was not the Duke of Edinburgh and the Queen, it was always the Queen first right? And it's an indication of the dignity and the the prominence of that person, okay? So they traveled with Paul. They made tents with him. They taught together. They taught Apollos together, it says, and they led a church in their home. Okay, next we've got Mary. Mary is a Jewish name, and Paul simply says she worked hard for the church there. Then we have another Jewish couple. We have Andronicus and Junia. Now, this one's really interesting because this is the only place they're mentioned, But Paul says they were imprisoned with him. And he says they are notable among the apostles. Now, if you're reading the ESV or a couple of translations, your translation may say they are notable to the apostles. They are known by the apostles. But actually, scholars are pretty universally agreed. The grammar demands they are notable among the apostles, which suggests Paul is numbering them among the apostles. They are apostles, in other words. And not only that, he says they are notable among the company of apostles. Now, two things about this. First of all, he says they're in prison with them. It was extremely rare for a woman to be imprisoned 
in the Roman world. They just didn't do that. It was, it was against modesty. It was, it was not what they would do. And terrible things would happen in prison, of course. And so it wasn't done. What does it mean that they found Junia worthy of imprisonment? It means she's a threat to the establishment. She's such a leader of the church that they see fit to imprison her alongside Paul. And so not only that, but they're missionaries, they're apostles, which usually when Paul uses that word, he means witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And it makes sense because he says they were in the, they were in the Lord before me. Okay. So next we have two Gentile women. We've got Tryphena and Tryphosa, and, and it's interesting. Their names mean delicate and dainty. And there's a little bit of play here because Paul says they worked hard in the Lord. In other words, they are anything but delicate and dainty. Next, we have this, another woman whose name is Persian. Her name is Persis. And Paul says she's worked hard for the Lord. So here we've got some, we've not only got Jews and Greeks, we've got a Persian woman. Then we've got Rufus's mother. Now, it's quite likely, we can't know for sure, but it's quite likely that this is the same Rufus that Luke mentions is one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene. You remember Simon of Cyrene was the, the man that they forced to carry Jesus' cross part of the way. Cyrene was a city in what would now be Libya. So Simon of Cyrene is an African. If we're talking about the same Rufus, now we've not only got Jews and Greeks and Persians, we've got Africans. So you see the the diversity, the, the global nature, even in the first decades of the church. I think that's really cool. And it's interesting here, Paul introduces the idea of spiritual motherhood. Not only Rufus's mother, but she's been a mother to me too. And then lastly, we've got Julia. And we don't know anything about Julia except that this is the most common female slave name in the Roman Empire. And so we've got a list of greetings, okay? And you say, well, you know, so what? What can we make of this? Well, I just want you to notice a few things, okay? Notice the variety. We've got women here of all kinds of occupations. We've got tent makers. We've got benefactors, we've got workers, and we've got slaves. We've got women of various stages of life, from single to married to probably widowed. We've got different social statuses, from artisans to aristocrats to slaves. We've got women of different roles in the church. We've got an apostle. We've got a deacon. We've got workers in the Lord. And did you notice, it's interesting, There's only one woman here who's mentioned as a physical mother. And yet, all of these women are greeted, they're dignified, they're honored for their contribution to the family of God. In this, which is probably the most significant letter ever written. And so, we're here today to honor mothers. And, you know, I have to say, Selena, I actually do think of you as kind of a Proverbs 31 woman. You do a lot of those things. We honor mothers, and I honor my wife for the incredible mom that she is. But what we're getting at this morning is that one of the things that the Bible is doing right from the start, right from page one, is saying there's a certain story about womanhood. You could call it a traditionalist story or a collectivist story that says a woman's value only comes from producing family, It comes from her attachment to a a certain man, and it comes from the tasks that she does to take care of her family. But yet you read Genesis, and you read the rest of Scripture, and it's constantly subverting 
that story. Most often, it's the barren woman that God blesses. Not because she's barren, but because it's counteracting this false reduction. Right? Very often, it's the unloved wives. And just think about the fact that in Jesus' family line, there's a prostitute, there's a rape victim, Bathsheba, right? So, the Bible's saying all along that the value and success of godly womanhood is not reducible just to our perfect picture of middle-class, you know, homemaking. Now, I mean, we're not in any way saying that that is less than anything else. Motherhood is unique, it's beautiful, it's important, and so don't take away that the story is anything less than that. But what it's saying is that is not the whole picture. Because if that's the whole picture, what it does is it reduces womanhood to an object with a set of tasks attached. And so many people, like we said, some of the reactions to, to, Psalm, to Proverbs 31, many people encounter what they think is the story, and they reject it. And so there's kind of reaction against that particular reduced view of womanhood. And so the reaction wants to swing all the way to the other side and say, well, basically, there is really no difference at all between men and women. But here's the thing. If that's the story that we tell, it also reduces womanhood because it effectively says there is no such thing as womanhood. And so... The important thing is, is absorbing the story that Jesus told. What's the story that Jesus told? The story that Jesus told was not a story of being less than men. It was not a story also that erased the existence of womanhood. It was a bigger story. It wasn't a reduced story. It was a bigger story. A story of a redeemed humanity beginning once again to work out its created calling in inclusion, in partnership, just like it was at the beginning. And so it doesn't erase the differences. In fact, God is more glorified by the unity between our differences. They're purposeful. And so what we're seeing in Jesus, what the story that he begins to tell and retell and redeem, that's what we're seeing played out in the early church and what we're seeing played out in Romans 16, this beginning of the reversal It's a picture of the redeeming of the image of God. And so I want to tell you, it's a bigger story. It's a better story. And it's our story. Okay? So I'm going to pass it back to Selena, and she's going to finish up. (laughs) So, what's the story that you've been telling about yourself? Is it the story about getting married, about having kids, about being a good wife? Is your story about throwing off all the shackles, all the expectations, all the patriarchal forces that are on you and just doing your own thing? Whatever story you tell shapes your reality. It shapes the way you live. Maybe your story makes you feel like you're not doing enough because you can't seem to keep up or live up to all of the demands of motherhood and the home? 
or you're not living up to expectations because you're not married yet and because you don't have any children yet. Or maybe you're a woman who is a gifted artist or a musician or a business person or an engineer and feels like her talents are not valued because they don't fit into the traditional roles assigned to women in the church. You are represented in scripture and commended and called to become a woman of virtue no matter what arena or set of tasks or seasonal stage of life that you're in. Whatever story you've been telling, God wants to redeem it and to place it within his story. He has formed you in his image to co-govern the new heavens and the new earth. And he has a place for you. Whatever your skills are, whatever situation you're in, whether you're the Proverbs 31 woman or you're the Romans 16 woman or anything in between, He has put them in you to shape you into the woman that you're meant to become and a woman of virtue. And to end, I would like to close reading a prayer that was written by the Church of England for Mothering Sunday. So if you are by any other women or mothers, please lay hands on them and join me in this prayer. Loving God, thank you for moms and children and for all the joy of family life. Be with those who are grieving because they have no mother. Be close to those who are struggling because they have no children. Be near to those who are sad because they are far apart from those they love. Let your love be present in every home and help your church to have eyes to see and ears to hear the needs of all who come. Thank you, God, for the love of our mothers. Thank you, God, for their care and concern. Thank you, God, for the joys they have shared with us. Thank you, God, for the pains they have borne for us. Thank you, God, for all that they give us. Jesus, like a mother, you gather your people to you. You are gentle with us as a mother with her children. Despair turns to hope through your sweet goodness. Through your gentleness, we find comfort in fear. Your warmth gives life to the dead. Your touch makes sinners righteous. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, heal us. In your love and tenderness, remake us. In your compassion, bring grace and forgiveness. For the beauty of heaven, may your love prepare us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, mothers. So some of your wanting to rush out to your reservations for lunch. So I'm going to let you do that and just just pray a benediction and, and release us to celebrate our moms and, and the women in our lives. So let's do that. Yeah, why don't you stand with me? Father, we just echo those the words of that prayer and we celebrate and we're grateful and we honor the the mothers the sisters the aunts the grandmothers the daughters the the moms today that express that that maternal love that emanates from your heart lord and so lord would you bless each of those women would you bind up their hearts with your, your love and your comfort, your joy. And Lord God, would they find their place in your bigger story, that incredible redeeming of 
your purposes, Lord. And may we image you faithfully as we partner together as men and women, married or unmarried, and fulfill your purposes in the earth, Lord. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.